Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of An Outside Opinion. This is a series of interviews I will conduct about Ukraine in global context. My name is Oleg Rybachuk and I am the host of this Center of United Actions Initiative. My guests are international experts, diplomats and researchers that are representing states with successful democracies and with working system of checks and balances. They know a lot about Ukraine and have extensive expertise in global politics, security and the work of democratic institutions. Today, my guest is a research fellow who has specialized in Eastern Europe, Russia and Central Asia for the last few years. He also has a good knowledge of our challenging neighbor Hungary, on which our Eurointegration future may depend. This is Dr. Andras Ratz, and he is a senior research fellow at the Center for Order and Governance in Eastern Europe, Russia and Central Asia of the German Council on Foreign Relations. Hi Andras, thank you very much for finding the time to visit our center. I really appreciate this. Now it's more than one year since Russian war in Ukraine started. What in your opinion explains the fact that Ukraine managed not only to withhold Russian invasion, but also we have liberated more than 50% of uh, territories initially occupied by Russians. What do, what do you think is the explanation of this? First and foremost, thank you for the invitation. It's really an honor to be here, particularly taking into account uh, the circumstances you mentioned, namely the war or the full-scale escalation. Because we need to keep in mind that the war didn't start a year ago. The war has been going on for more than nine years, since the illegal occupation of, uh, of the Crimea. So this is the escalation phase of a nine years long war. And regarding this particular question, I mean, of course, I don't have any kind of ability to foresee the future, so this is only my private opinion. But I think the most important factor has been the will of the Ukrainian people to fight and the resilience of the people and the country, including its government. The experiences of the war before, so the previous eight years of experience, that also helped Ukraine to withstand the aggression and also to liberate territories. Assistance from the West also helped a lot, but still I think the key factor has been the resilience and the bravery and the will of the Ukrainian people. In my conversations with many uh, international experts and even with Ukrainian, uh, in, uh, Ukrainian uh, experts and uh, officials, uh, it is often stated that Putin has grossly miscalculated when he decided to invade Ukraine. In your opinion, what is his key mistake? This is an interesting thing. From the analytical perspective, it's very hard to forecast when the adversary makes a mistake. Because all our analytical models are based on the calculus that the other side is rational. This is called the rational actor model. Mm -hmm. But somebody making such a grave mistake, what Putin did by attacking Ukraine, this has been very hard to forecast. I think the key mistake from which all the other mistakes are coming from is the fundamental misunderstanding of Ukraine and underrating Ukraine because he underestimated Ukraine as a people, Ukraine as a country. And because he underestimated Ukraine, that's why he thought that he could finish up occupying most parts of Ukraine in one week. 
That's why he thought that the West would not have enough time to react. That's why he thought that his invasion force, slightly less than 200,000 soldiers, would be enough for defeating a country of such size. So I think the core mistake from what all the other mistakes are originating from is the fundamental underestimation of Ukraine. Sanctions. Since this word appeared actively in international politics, uh, I believe that Russia is by far the mostly sanctioned country in the world nowadays. Not any other country uh, was meeting this kind of uh, reaction from the international community. What do you think about effectiveness of sanctions and how are they really helping the international community to send clear message to Russia? You know, the more Russia speaks about how sanctions do not matter, the more optimistic I am. This probably because as a Russia watcher, I'm, I'm cynical or I've seen just too many such propaganda from their side. But the more they say that, oh, we feel even better, oh, it doesn't matter, oh, it doesn't hurt us, the less I believe. And actually, there are contradictions in the Russian official narratives. Because on the one hand, on the one hand they keep saying that sanctions don't hurt us, sanctions don't matter. On the, uh, at the same time, they are pushing for the weakening of the sanctions. On the third time, on the third, uh, they are also trying to circumvent the sanctions. If sanctions wouldn't matter, why, why is it necessary to circumvent them? So the Russian official narratives are also uh, contradictory. And yes, in the long, in the short run, Russia has turned out to be fairly resilient to the sanctions. But sanctions bite in the medium and in the long run. Sanctions are already biting. The most important sanctions, which bites Russia the most, which weakens Russia the most, has been the sanctions on Russia's oil industry. Because that, that's where the real money is. But one needs to remember that the sanctions on the oil, in oil industry, part of the sanctions for the crude oil came into effect only in December last year, and the sanctions for oil products, I mean for the import of oil products, came into effect only February this year, approximately a month ago. So the most important sanctions are just starting to have an effect. And if one looks at Russia's official budget numbers, and of course one may have question marks to what extent these budget numbers reflect to the reality. But even the official uh, macroeconomic numbers and budgetary numbers are really bad. I mean, by the end of February, um, the deficit of Russia's state budget reached, more, reached almost the planned annual deficit. I mean, Russia's GDP contracted last year 2.1%. Uh, and of course, Russia communicates it as a success that, oh, the, the loss of, loss of in, in the budget, the deficit in the, uh, sorry, the, the, the decrease of GDP is only 2.1%. Uh, well, I cannot recall a single country which would call a recession a success. So I think one shall not expect too fast results from the sanctions. You know, the, the, the British saying, keep calm and carry on. This is what we need to do with the sanctions. Sanctions do bite in the medium and in the long run, particularly when it comes to Russia's military production capabilities. So it's not only the Russian macroeconomic, uh, macroeconomic sector, the Russian macroeconomy, which is hurt by the sanctions, but also the defense industry. Sanctions are seriously constraining Russia's ability to produce modern weaponry. So we need to keep up the sanctions, I think, and we need to do our best to close the loopholes, you know, to close the ways how can Russia circumvent the sanctions. 
And once we can close those ways, how sanctions can be circumvented, how Russia can still import some uh, high-tech high -tech products, the more efficient we are in closing these loopholes, the more the sanctions will bite Russia. So I think this is the direction to go. Every time EU discusses a new package of sanctions, it is chronically blocked by Hungary. I know that you are working long time in Berlin, but still I would like to hear your opinion. Why do you think uh, Hungarian government or Hungarian president is so eager to block every next sanctions? And how one can explain this uh, Hungarian authorities' desire to be a protector of the country which invaded Ukraine. How can you explain this? See, um, first, a few basic things need, need, need to be clarified here. Uh, Hungary is not blocking the sanctions. Hungary is slowing down the adoption of the sanctions. In the very end, Hungary voted for each and every sanction. Yeah. Budapest just delayed them considerably. Why? That's a different, different question. We will get to that. And uh, in the Hungarian system, it's the prime minister who decides. The president is mostly a symbolic figure. Why Prime Minister Orban and his government has been working so much for slowing down the sanctions, this is something very hard to reconstruct and interpret from open sources. It's um, not really clear what exactly the Hungarian government is receiving in exchange for delaying the sanctions. There have been some cases which are clear. For example, when it comes to the oil sanctions, which, which was mentioned previously, Hungary slowed down the adoption of the oil sanctions by several weeks in order to achieve an exemption from the oil sanctions. And Hungary got this exemption, and this could be perfectly justified, and this, this was rational. Hungary has been extremely dependent on the import of Russian crude oil last year. So it was an elementary necessity for Hungary to get this exemption for a short period of time. So there are cases which are clear, let's say the oil. But there are cases which are extremely hard to explain. For example, why Hungary got Russian patriarch Kirill off from the sanctions list. I know nobody from Hungary, and neither do I know any open sources which would justify the need for that. So taking into account the extremely, well, the word is, the extremely transactionalist nature of Hungarian foreign policy. Transactionalist means you never get anything for free. There is always a tit for tat. If you want me to make a concession, give me something in exchange. Hungarian foreign policy is extremely transactionalistic. So comes the question, what did Budapest in exchange, what did Budapest get in exchange for getting Kirill off the, from the sanctions list? This is something that cannot be reconstructed from open sources. This I honestly don't know. So to sum it up, in some cases, the Hungarian policy line on the sanctions is rational and can be justified based on national interests. But there are other cases which really just make no sense or cannot be justified from open sources. Taking into account the transactional nature, probably there is some kind of a background deal, but this I don't know. Since the war is more than a year, it's more than a year that Ukraine lives under martial law. And uh, civil society in Ukraine, I think as civil society in any country, is clearly understanding that martial law means you have to be prepared to give up certain freedoms, liberties, even activities, because we are at war. But there is this sensitive moment uh, 
when you give to government much more authorities than government usually has because of the war, there is always this threat or possibility that the government would be very much tempted not to give up all those extra uh, powers they get when there was no, there will be no more need. How do you think, where, how we can draw that line, how we should watch that it will not happen? Well, I'm not in the position to give any advice to Ukraine, and anyways, it would but look generally, old. yeah. So uh, instead of giving any advice to Ukraine, let me just try to draw a few conclusions from the Hungarian case. I think the most important element that even if the government has some extraordinary powers because of the war, one needs to make sure that when the reason of the martial law or state of emergency, so when the reason comes to an end, the special legal status shall also come to an end. That's one thing. The second, that the institutions of independent checks and balances, parliamentary control, ombudsman, uh, civil society oversight, all these, so the very system of checks and balances shall not be eroded during the martial law. During the martial law, many of these checks and balances are suspended. But one needs to keep a close eye on whether these institutions do not get destroyed. So when the martial law comes to an end after Ukraine's victory, checks and balances shall be able to work again with, uh, on, on full capacity. And of course, one, what does one need to watch? Legal changes regarding institutions of checks and balances. Personal changes. In the Hungarian case, several institutions of checks and balances are nominally still independent. Pro forma, it's all right. De jure, everything's all right. But such people were appointed to these key positions who are 100% loyal to Viktor Orban. And because of their work, the institution which should be technically independent, de facto, it serves the government interest. So personal changes is also something one, one needs to watch. The third element also from the Hungarian case, there have been cases when instead of having the old institutions of checks and balances, some kind of a new institution was created. And from then on, this new institution was re, uh, has been used by the government to justify how good everything, it, everything is in the field of rule of law. So I think these are the key elements. If we even need uh, me to give a short answer is to preserve the functionality of institutions and checks and balances to make sure that once martial law comes to an end, checks and balances can function again properly. Hungary is often mentioned as an example of democracy, which is drifting towards authoritarianism. Uh, in, you, you, you personally address this issue just right now, but if you would think about Ukraine, what would you recommend Ukraine, what lessons should we learn to avoid uh, to follow the same path? Because it, it is possible. We clearly understand that even if you have functioning democratic institutions, but there might be something which slowly but gradually turns your democracy into authoritarian regime. What are mostly lessons we should learn from hum Hungarian experience? The case of the institutions of checks and balances have already been mentioned. The second is uh, the society's resilience and the society's awareness of the dangers of authoritarianism. When Hungary's authoritarian transformation started, 
Viktor Orbán again came, to, once he was already in power between 1998 and 2002, all our uh, audience knows it, he returned to power in 2010. Between 2010 and 2014, the transformation already started, the sliding towards authoritarianism, but it has become more uh, evident after 2014. But what, what can be a lesson to learn is that yes, this indeed can happen in a democracy. It never happened in an EU country before. So for the European Union, this was a grave surprise because such a transformation, such a sliding towards authoritarianism never happened in any other EU country to such an extent. So the second institutions of checks and balances, first. Second, the awareness that yes, it can happen. Regardless of European integration, yes, it's still possible. The third, regarding also the awareness of the society. Authoritarianism usually is not efficient economically. Economically, Hungary is performing way worse than the other Central European countries. Because, of, because authoritarian tendencies erode investors' trust, in the Hungarian case, erode the excess, the EU money, it just doesn't pay off. So it might also help for other countries to, to understand that these kind of authoritarian tendencies, they, they make your life worse. And when the rule of law, then the principles of rule of law are violated and are violated again and again, it makes the life of the average citizen even worse. So it's not that somebody's getting, so things are getting decided only up in the high politics and me as an average citizen, I'm not concerned. No, I should be concerned. And the fourth thing, the importance of a widespread, flourishing, diverse, independent media. What makes Viktor Orban's regime very strong in Hungary is an immensely strong propaganda apparatus, which has been built up during the last decade. It, it took several years to build up. Just to give you one example, which would be probably quite hard to, to imagine for Ukrainians, because your media environment has been always very diverse. Now, even now with the martial law, it's still very diverse. And when the martial law will come to an end, hopefully it will be e even more diverse again. In the Hungarian case, the government controlled or government influenced media apparatus controls every nationwide television channels except one. Every nationwide radio channels, every printed newspaper in the countryside, and many online newspapers as well. This is an immense propaganda apparatus composed of more than 450 media outlets. And all the 450 media outlets broadcast the same coordinated message. The Hungarian system is not as sophisticated as the Russian system. The Russian media environment looks like it's diverse. The message is the same, but it's a very sophisticated system. The Hungarian one is simpler, uh, more brutal, more evident. But the existence of this immense propaganda apparatus, this is what keeps the regime uh, re-elected. This is what keeps the regime in control. Because let's say if you're not an intelligentsia from one of the bigger cities, but you live somewhere in the countryside, you work in a car repair shop, you work in agriculture, you're a doctor, whomever you are, whichever TV channel you switch on or whichever radio channel you switch on, you get the same message. How would you get yourself informed? So the ma maintaining the diversity and the independence of media is a crucial element in preventing such an authoritarian transformation that has taken place in Hungary. Now for Ukraine, accession to EU and NATO is utmost goal. 
What should we do to avoid misunderstanding with uh, Hungary in this regard? Do not focus too much on Hungary. Ukraine's EU and NATO accession is not dependent on Hungary. There, there will be a moment when every EU and NATO member will have to vote for, Hungary, for, for Ukraine to join. But this moment is not tomorrow. This moment is not the day after tomorrow. This moment is yet a long time from now. So again, I'm not in the position to, to give any advice. Who am, who am I to give advice to Ukraine? But taking into account the lessons learned from the EU approximation process in the Western Balkans, and also the EU approximation process of Central European countries. Sir, it's a very long process. It's about institutional reforms. It's about adoption of laws. It's about implementation of laws. Lot of monitoring. This is a crazily long process. Even for Hungary, it took nearly 15 years, and Hungary had, had experienced no wars. For the, Western, for the Western Balkans countries, it has been taking even longer, and some of them still haven't yet made it. This is a very long process. It's not going to happen in one year or another, regardless of what certain politicians say. One needs to be resilient, and one needs to keep working meticulously, accurately on all the institutional reforms. The same goes actually for NATO. So in, if Ukraine properly implements the necessary reforms, the necessary approximation to the EU standards, uh, and all these reforms get implemented, this is the guarantee for Ukraine sooner or later by joining the European Union. If Ukraine, let's imagine Ukraine already implemented all the reforms, and Ukraine is really at the gate of EU accession. Yes, there will be a moment when every EU country will have to vote for that. But I find it quite hard to imagine that Hungary would alone block it for a long time. If Ukraine implements all the necessary reforms, if Ukraine really gets transformed into into a European country, also in the legal sense, in the very meticulous legal standards, uh, then the accession will take place. Ukraine is Europe. That was the major slogan at Euromaidan, where all my center actively participated. Uh, <laughs> so you, we, we don't have this question, but do you believe that the year of active or escalation of Russian war in Ukraine has changed Europeans' attitude to Ukraine? Do you believe that Europe now mostly looks at Ukraine as an equal partner or still there are certain prejudices? The war absolutely changed Europe's perception of Ukraine, of course, and we have data on that. I mean, uh, the Eurobarometer survey, which has been published by the European Commission uh, fairly regularly, the latest Eurobarometer survey has been published uh, shortly before the anniversary of, uh, of the full-scale escalation, 23rd of February, if I'm not mistaken. And, that, and of course, in that survey, all the European countries' populations were asked about their support for Ukraine, about their support for the sanctions, support for the humanitarian action, support for carrying the refugees, and decisive majority of Europeans. And regarding some questions, more than 85% of Europeans are in full support for Ukraine, and they, and they agree that Europe and the European Union should keep supporting Ukraine as long as actually it takes. This is the message you hear also from key European leaders, that the support is not a fixed, not, not a process with a fixed end. Support will prevail as long as it's necessary. So, I th so the first part of your question, whether Europe's perception on Ukraine has changed, indeed, yes. Whether Ukraine is perceived as equal, 
Here we need to be careful because Europe is not, Ukraine is not yet a member of the European Union. It has the accession perspective, um, it has the visa-free, it has the DCFTA, it has a lot of benefits, but still it's not a full-fledged EU member. I have no question that sooner or later this moment will come, but we are not yet there. So from the legal perspective, Ukraine is not yet an equal partner. But from the political perspective, and, when it, and, and regarding particularly the public support from the population of, of EU countries towards Ukraine, I think, yes, the war changed everything and changed, as absurd as it sounds, but it changed Europe's support for Ukraine for the better. The reason is sad, the reason is tragic, the war is tragic. But this is one of the, the, the good effects of the war, that Europe finally understood that, uh, that Ukraine is a European country and, and needs all the support uh, we can give. In your opinion, how the war in Ukraine will change the international system of checks and balances? Because we can obviously say that that was a crash test for international security system and international security system crushed. Now it is not functioning. And uh, closer to our region, what do you believe can or should happen in the countries of Central and Eastern Europe? Because we are much more vulnerable to the threats uh, in comparison with the whole world. Yes, absolutely. And this war has been, a, uh, uh, has been really a fundamental change, has brought a fundamental change into international relations. And because the war is not yet over, because the war will end with Ukraine's victory, but we are not yet there. The war is not yet over, so one needs to be careful in, in drawing conclusions. Still, a few things are already visible. First, uh, the assumption that, oh, no major war can happen in Europe anymore, this assumption was fundamentally wrong. Second, as a conclusion from, this, uh, from the first one, Europe is rearming herself, and this rearming process will continue. Many European countries are increasing their defense budgets. Uh, Germany has substantially increased the defense budget. Poland is building up a fairly strong army with a really large-scale modernization process. Uh, Nordic countries are also beefing up their defense budgets. Central European countries as well. So Europe is rearming herself because the conventional military threat from the Russian Federation primarily, it indeed exists and finally Europe learned that. Uh, the third thing, the good old German Ostpolitik, that it is possible to keep Russia at bay, it is possible to influence Russia via trade relations, and it's possible to prevent wars by having good tra trade relations with Russia, well, Ostpolitik is dead. It turned out, unfortunately, already first time in Georgia, but the Georgian case was quite different. Uh, but now it turned out very blatantly that this Ostpolitik logic just doesn't work. So simply by trade, it's not possible to prevent an armed aggression. So other needs uh, or other means need to be found. So Germany is also fundamentally reshaping her Russia policy because the lessons have been learned. I mean, you, uh, you, you heard it from, from President Steinmeier that he openly admitted that, yes, we were wrong. We made a mistake. And, people, and one needs to learn from, uh, from one's mistakes. Fourth thing is that because armed aggression and the possibility of a large-scale war in Europe is indeed real, as this tragic war in Ukraine is showing it, uh, most probably the transatlantic cooperation in the field of defense particularly, it's going to get stronger. Because this is the only way, so the closer cooperation inside NATO, 
uh, in the shadow of the Russian threat is, uh, is going to get closer. And the fifth thing, a bit, bit more global, what's happening now in Ukraine is fundamentally influencing also China's policy, particularly regarding Taiwan. So the Chinese government is really watchful about the war in Ukraine and, and the reactions the West has been giving uh, to the war in Ukraine, because this is shaping their policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. So how, when Ukraine wins the war and how Ukraine wins the war, it has an effect also on, uh, on, the, on the Asian part of the world, uh, again, particularly on China. So yes, I fully agree with you. This war has global consequences and these global consequences will stay with us. It was great pleasure talking to you. Thank you to all our listeners, and I also recommend you to visit CenterUA.org to learn more about us. I also invite you to subscribe to the Center's YouTube channel so you can never miss our show and see you in the next episode. It will be also very interesting. Mm -hmm.